Welcome to Talking History, a series of talks from the Farnham U3A World History Group. The views expressed in this talk are representative of the views held at the time of the material being discussed. They do not necessarily represent the views of the speaker, the Farnham U3A World History Group, nor the team at the Mr T Podcast Studio. In this talk, Alan Freeland tells us about the English writer, philosopher and art critic John Ruskin. John Ruskin, 1819 to 1900. So let me just start by giving you a brief overview of who this man was before we get into the, the detail of it. So John Ruskin was one of the most influential art critics, social thinkers and commentators of the Victorian era. He was also a good watercolorist, a keen geologist, a naturalist, a philanthropist and a teacher. And he was born the same year as Queen Victoria and died one year before Queen Victoria died. So he is a complete Victorian. He wrote extensively on travel, geology, architecture, ornithology, mineralogy, political economy, and the environment. He was the founder of the Guild of St. George and the Ruskin School of Fine Art. He was an inspiration for the Arts and Crafts Movement, the National Trust, Christian Socialism, and the British Labour Party. In all, his literary works amount to 39 volumes and over 9 million words. And he wrote, I am never satisfied that I've handled the subject properly until I've contradicted myself at least three times. His writing, whilst very insightful, very eloquent, very descriptive, is also very, very verbose. He is not an easy read, nor easy to summarise. He used art to help him see more clearly how the world works and how society works, and he used his insight, his passion and his enthusiasm to try and make the world a better place. He was complimented in his lifetime with the title Word Painter, i.e. someone who could use words to paint a vivid picture. He somewhat regretted that his accolade was not a thinker. So hopefully that's giving you a bit of an overview of why many think he is important. In this talk, I propose to cover his life and achievements in five parts. First, his legacy, so we can see what influence he still has today. Second, his biography, so we can get to understand the man and his purely aesthetic relationship with women. Third, his role as artist, art critic and art historian. And we'll look at a couple of examples of his skill as a word painter and his deep knowledge of nature, and also how he sought to ruin the artist Whistler because of Whistler's moral values. His multi-volume book, Modern Painters, will be a source here. Fourth, his influence on architecture, history and culture, and his famous book, The Stones of Venice. And lastly, his role as a social and environmental reformer, his contribution to the ethos of the Labour Party, and the inspiration he provided Gandhi and his book Unto This Last being the key work here. The sources I have used were as follows. First of all, the Victorian web. It provides a good summary of his life and contributions. The Watts Gallery have two online talks on Ruskin, one by Dr. Cooper called To See Clearly Why Ruskin Matters, which is a gentle focus on his life through his watercolours. And one by Andrew Hill, and he's the managing editor of the FT, and has published a book called Ruskinland. His Watts Gallery talk promotes the book and focuses on Ruskin's philosophy and how he tried to change the world and his legacy in the 21st century. Malcolm Andrews, who's the Professor of Victorian and Visual Studies at the University of Kent, has a Gresham College lecture on Ruskin, 
and that focuses mostly on him as an art critic and word painter. And the Yale Center for British Art has a lengthy one hour, 23 minute video on the background to and themes of their 2019 exhibition called Unto This Last 200 Years of John Ruskin. And there's also a delightful poignant little book, a 30 minute read called Ruskin's Rose, which focuses on his relationship with Rose Latouche and Saint Ursula and his mental health following the death of Rose Latouche. In addition, all of Ruskin's major books are available digitized online. I've read many hours of these, just a tiny fraction of what he's written. And apart from the books, Ruskin Land and Ruskin's Rose, all the rest are available without charge if you want to follow up any of the topics afterwards. So first then to his legacy, I'll provide a disparate set of examples to show how his memory and his thinking live on today. Ruskin, Florida was established in 1910 as a community built upon Ruskin's belief in the combination of work, art and education being necessary for a good, fulfilled person. Children paid for their education through work. Today, Ruskin is a small town of 17,000 people. They've kept the name, but there's little left of the original ethos. Ruskin said, fine art is that in which the hand, the head and the heart of man go together. Ruskin was one of the first to document the environmental impact of industrialization on the planet and to try to get those in power to pay attention and legislate. In this country, he is remembered by having a memorial in Poets' Corner in Westminster Abbey. His contemporaries, who also have memorials there, include Matthew Arnold, Lewis Carroll, George Eliot, Gerald Manley Hopkins, Henry Longfellow, and William Wordsworth. He declined an offer to be buried in Westminster Abbey and instead is buried at his home on Coniston Water. The BBC series In Our Time has a programme dedicated to him. And in 2019, on the bicentenary of his birth, the BBC posed the question, was Ruskin the most important man of the last 200 years? The article is written by Daisy Dunn, and she starts her article. If we think of John Ruskin at all today, it tends to be as the buttoned up Victorian who was so repulsed by his wife Effie Gray's pubic hair that he could not consummate their marriage. The anecdote, which was actually invented in the 20th century, has overshadowed the fact that Ruskin was one of the most influential figures in modern history, inspiring everyone from Charlotte Bronte to Mahatma Gandhi and the founders of the UK's National Trust. An artist, critic and social reformer, he was born in London on 8th of February 1819, the same year as Queen Victoria, and he was, was without question one of the most important Victorians of all. Good old BBC. If there isn't a royal angle or a football angle, then the assumption is we won't pay attention without some graphic sex talk. London has had a blue plaque scheme since 1866, so it's a puzzle to me why in 1925 London County Council decided to erect this non-blue version of the famous plaques outside his now demolished house at 26 Hearn Hill in Lambeth. Outside of his writings and the very significant impact he had on people he met and who read his work, his most tangible legacies are to do with education. He believed art education should be for all. Art taught people to see, and by seeing clearly, people would do a better job, no matter what job they had, from labourers to philosophers. So Ruskin founded his School of Art shortly after becoming the first lay professor of fine art at Oxford University. 
Ruskin donated extensive artworks and objects to the workers of Sheffield and created an active museum to enable the workers to value seeing and learning. And to quote from the museum, the museum was intended for the people Ruskin called the iron workers of Sheffield, in particular the artisans who were producing the world famous Sheffield cutlery, which he hugely admired. Displayed in a simple cottage, the collection was very modestly presented, but Ruskin's ambitions for it were substantial. It was there to teach beauty to those who'd been denied it, and the evidence is that it attracted many eager to learn. And it still attracts many today. The Ruskin collection, as it's now called, is housed in the Millennium Gallery at the heart of busy Sheffield, where it still attracts a constant flow of visitors. It has grown since the 1870s, but the core of it remains what was bought, commissioned, collected, and sometimes drawn by Ruskin himself and given without charge to the people of Sheffield. Ruskin was a thinker, an ideas man. He wasn't a businessman. He couldn't manage anything. He achieved by inspiring others who did the legwork of making stuff happen. Having said that, he was no slouch. He was a workaholic. He worked tirelessly on research, writing, painting, giving talks and teaching. Another major legacy is the Guild of St George. This description is largely from the Guild's website and it's still a very active charity today. Ruskin announced the formation of the Guild of St George as an utopian enterprise. It represented Ruskin's practical response to a society in which profit and mass production seemed to be everything, beauty, goodness and ordinary happiness, nothing. Ruskin made it clear in a monthly series of letters to workmen and labourers of Great Britain that the ambitious aim of the Guild was to make Britain a happier place to live in. I have listened to many ingenious persons, he wrote, who say we are better off now than ever we were before. But, he went on, we cannot be called as a nation well off while so many of us are living in beggary. In other words, for Ruskin, no nation could be called rich if its cities were ugly, its countryside polluted, and its people poor, hungry, and ignorant. And he asked those who agree with him to join in establishing a national store instead of a national debt. In practice, the Guild's efforts were focused on quite modest ideals. He targeted three main areas of English life in need of support and improvement. Art education, craft work, and the rural economy. He hoped to promote the understanding and appreciation of good art, to encourage craftsmen rather than mass production, and to revive what we should now call sustainable agriculture. He was trying to create, in effect, an alternative to industrial capitalism. Today, the Guild manages the Ruskin collection at the Sheffield Museum and runs various events to strengthen communities, promote nature, art, well-being. Ruskin also purchased some 13 acres of land near Sheffield, which was eventually sold when the mayor of Birmingham gave Ruskin 20 acres of land in the Wire Valley in Worcestershire. And the Guild today runs Ruskin land, an area which has grown to 100 acres of mostly oak woodland with two farmhouses, a sawmill, an orchard and a wildflower meadow. It offers visitors work and learning opportunities and a chance to appreciate beauty. And the John Ruskin Prize was inaugurated in 2012 by the Guild and the prize aims to uphold John Ruskin's beliefs, an impassioned critic, not only of art, but of society and life. He believed that art has the power to expose universal truths and that a good artist should do just that.
So those examples are a bit serious and worthy. So let's take a look at some more commercial companies using the name Ruskin to promote their ethos. Any company wishing to emphasize its high levels of design and craftsmanship will today be tempted to associate themselves with Ruskin. And I provide just a few examples out of very, very many, just to emphasize how his thinking and, and ideals pervade all types of business. First, there is the apparel designer, Ruskin London, who have named the company after him. On their website, they write, we believe that craftsmanship is the quality that comes from working creatively and intelligently with the greatest patience and attention to detail. It is a quality for the preserve of those who have practiced and refined their skills over the course of a career. It is the quality that defines Ruskin. I agree, I think that reflects Ruskin the man well. Ted Todd writes the following about their wood flooring products, Ruskin. It's not hard to connect emotionally, viscerally even, with the exceptional 400-year-old French oak and wonder what stories each plank, panel, chevron and herringbone block has to tell. Our most experienced craftspeople certainly connected when we presented this scarce resource to them, daring them to experiment on a fragment of such a treasured material. The result, a lovingly crafted floor with gorgeous hand-rolled edge detailing and beautiful tones that dash across the floor. Practically, Ruskin is hard to beat too. Sorry, but I think marketing have gone overboard with this one. Or perhaps you're in the mood for some spode china. The Ruskin house range could be just the thing. And I'm sure many of you back in pre-COVID, pre-Brexit days would have been with the family and having a John Lewis Ruskin house themed Christmas with your Ruskin tree, Ruskin decorations, Ruskin throws and Ruskin tablewares. Or perhaps your Land Rover discovery doesn't quite exude the craftsmanship that you feel your lifestyle demands and you have used Ruskin design to upgrade the leather interior. And still on coverings, Rubelli is one of the three most exclusive fabric designers in Italy, possibly the world. Their only outlet in the UK is in Chelsea Harbour, which tells you all you need to know about prices. Their Ruskin range of crinkled damask fabrics comes in 18 colour options. But to fully experience the Ruskin effect of creating something beautiful with your own hands, may I recommend to you the Ruskin Home Build, a Renaissance-style four-bedroom property inspired by the arts and crafts era and called Ruskin. A mere £320,000 for the house design and material, all you have to do is provide the land and the labour. Gosh, after all of that, I think we could do with some refreshment. How about a craft beer? Kirby Lonsdale Brewery describes its Ruskin beer thus. Brewed using fine Maris Otter malted barley, complemented with Magnum and Brewer's gold hops to give a fruity and spicy characteristic with a lasting dry finish. I'm not sure many learned historians would describe Ruskin as fruity and spicy, but a lasting dry finish is very appropriate. So who was Ruskin? The National Portrait Gallery writes this. This portrait of him as a child was commissioned by his father. At the time, the Ruskin family lived in Hunter Street near the British Museum, and Ruskin sat to the portrait painter James Northcote in his studio in Argyle Street. The resulting portrait cost 40 guineas and was described by Ruskin in his autobiography thus. I am represented as running in a field at the edge of a wood, with the trunks of its trees striped across in the manner of Sir Joshua Reynolds. 
whilst two rounded hills, as blue as my shoes, appear in the distance, which were put in the painter at my own request, for I'd already been once, if not twice, taken to Scotland. I don't remember anything about my life at age three and a half, but I certainly doubt I'd have been telling any adult how to do their job. And despite the inclusion of a dog in the picture, Ruskin never had anything to love as a child. He was the only child of older parents. Ruskin's father, John James Ruskin, was a highly successful sherry and wine importer and the manager of a partnership with Telford and Demek of Allied Demek fame. Being the son of a merchant meant Ruskin was often an outsider and looked down upon by the titled. Both parents were hugely protective and, and ambitious for him in different ways. John James was passionate about literature, loved Byron, Shakespeare and Walter Scott, and installed in the young Ruskin a love of literature and writing. His mother, Margaret, was an evangelical Christian and made Ruskin read the Bible every day, committing large parts of it to memory. Ruskin writes of his father, his ideal of my future, now entirely formed in conviction of my genius, was that I should enter at college into the best society, take all the prizes every year and a double first to finish with, marry Lady Clara Vere de Vere, write poetry as good as Byron's, only pious, preach sermons as good as Bizet's, only Protestant, be made at 40 Bishop of Winchester and at 50 Primate of England. Those of you with a more literary bent will know that as well as being a real person, Lady Clara Vere de Vere is also the title of a poem written by Tennyson in 1842, when Ruskin would have been in his 20s. The poem has the line, kind hearts are more than coronets. But perhaps more relevant to our story, the poem tells that Lady Clara rebuffed a young but low-born man who loved her, and he goes on to commit suicide after her rejection. It's a good job Ruskin never proposed to Lady Clara Vere de Vere. Being the only child of two such passionate and devoted parents, Ruskin never recovered from their care. He was born at home in Brunswick Square, Bloomsbury, just south of St Pancras Station. Lancaster University have a Ruskin library and a Ruskin research facility, and they wrote this about his childhood. He was allowed only the simplest toys, a ball, a bunch of keys and some wooden bricks, and was strictly required to occupy himself. Ruskin wrote, the law was that I should find my own amusement. As a consequence, by his fourth year, he was content to pass a day at home in Brunswick Square by, quote, tracing the squares and comparing the colours of my carpet, examining the knots in the wood of the floor, or counting the bricks in the opposite houses. Without quite saying so, Ruskin is describing an education in looking patiently and closely and accurately. And he tells us that his eye for visual detail was so acute that when he was brought for the first time to Northcote Studio in Argyle Street, he said, I had not been 10 minutes alone with him before I asked, why are there holes in this carpet? I have a hunch that despite all his good work, if I had been rooting for Ruskin in our house fire debate, he would have fared no better than Machiavelli. In 1823, the family moved to 28 Hearn Hill, where Ruskin spent the rest of his childhood. According to the lecture by Malcolm Andrews, and I quote, the Hearn Hill garden was renowned all over the hill for its pears and apples. The garden was indeed Ruskin's first taste of an earthly paradise. Though taste may not be quite the right word, for Ruskin writes, 
the differences in primal importance with which I observed between the nature of this garden and that of Eden, as I had imagined it, were that in this one all the fruit was forbidden and there were no companionable beasts. His mother didn't allow him playfellows. Ruskin was homeschooled in his early years and would sometimes accompany his father on business trips to find country houses all across Britain. On these journeys, he grew to love and appreciate different landscapes and different weather patterns. The fine houses gave him opportunity to study architecture and sometimes to see their collections of fine paintings. Malcolm Andrews again. Ruskin credited his analytical skills on his lack of toys and the fact that he had to entertain himself. The Italian politician and writer and person who did much to bring about the unification of Italy wrote of Ruskin, he has the most analytical mind in Europe. He also had a rich imagination having been brought up on Shakespeare, Byron, Walter Scott, Homer and Robinson Crusoe. His father was also a painter and a gifted storyteller of improvised stories. Ruskin at the age of 13 was given for his birthday a book of poems about Hannibal passing through the Alps and of Venice illustrated by the painter Turner and this captured his imagination. His father loved Turner's work, and rather awkwardly, Turner was invited and came to a number of Ruskin's birthdays. Ruskin would share his views of how God shaped the world, and Turner would sit there, uncertain how to respond. Ruskin felt art should be both truthful and beautiful, but should also capture God's hand in what you experience, and he felt Turner captured this better than any of the great masters of history. So Ruskin combined three impressive skills, the ability to look and notice great detail, analytical skills to determine the significance of that detail, and a great imagination to weave a story from those details. Ruskin's parents liked to travel in Europe, and Ruskin particularly enjoyed the landscapes of the Alps and the architecture of Venice. Ruskin's first love was geology, and his first ambition was to become president of the Geological Society but his father was keen on Turner's paintings and drawings, and it was probably this that caused him to start his career in the world of art. Ruskin visited Venice 11 times, and it was Ruskin that turned Venice from an unfashionable decaying town to a tourist-plagued attraction. Ruskin's first visit to Venice was in 1835 at the age of 16, and the city had a lifelong influence on him, both emotionally and intellectually. Initially seduced by its romantic beauty, Ruskin later chose to undertake a far deeper study of its history, art and architecture than anyone had previously attempted, which he documented in his major three-volume work, The Stones of Venice. In 1837, Ruskin takes up residence at Christchurch, Oxford as a gentleman commoner, which meant he had to pay tuition and lodgings. Ruskin very much liked to learn by seeing, and he wrote about this time as an undergraduate. I had no spare energy for the pursuit of such English history as the buildings of Oxford and its within Walk district ought to have provided me and pleaded with me to know. If any of my tutors had only the sense to stop off the books I did not like and take two or three summer afternoon walks with me to Godstow and Abingdon, telling me what the places meant, I count that it would have saved me seven years of strong life spent in figuring out for myself what I might have been told in a summer term. I've struggled to determine what exactly Ruskin read at Oxford, from his autobiography, he talks about the classics, Greek history and Greek language, which he struggled with, and he studied Latin, mathematics and geometry. And it was during his time as an undergraduate at Oxford that he started a more serious and structured study of architecture and cultural history. And he develops his skills as a writer and artist. 
Indeed, it was his ability to knock up a quick sketch that endeared his, this rather eccentric, self-opinionated young man to those undergraduates with whom he made friends. His mother also took up residence in Oxford, and every day Ruskin would have tea with his mother. At the weekends, his father would join them. Not the normal sort of undergraduate life, and not an approach that is going to make getting to know girls easy. Shortly after graduating, Ruskin published the first volume of Modern Painters, which was a passionate, eloquent and analytical defence of Turner's landscape paintings. The Art Academy at the time was in love with landscape paintings in the pre-Christian classical style and ignored Turner. Such was his father's fear that this book would ruin Ruskin's career, that Ruskin had to publish the first volume anonymously. It was signed, A Graduate of Oxford. But let's turn next to Ruskin's love life. His first love was Adele Demek, daughter of his father's partner in the wine business. The teenage Ruskin had no idea about how to interest a teenage girl. He tried wooing her with tales of the Spanish Armada and the battles of Waterloo. Now this may work with the Farnham U3A history group, but he received mockery and ridicule from Adele and her sisters, and it clearly remained a painful memory. 50 years later, Ruskin writes, the fiery furnace of the four sisters reduced me to a mere heap of white ashes in four days. Adele and her three sisters eventually marry into French aristocracy. One hopes Ruskin's love life will improve. It doesn't, it gets worse. Effie Gray was a family relative. And when 12 year old Effie Gray challenges Ruskin to write her a fairy story, this he does, calling it The King of the Golden River. It is published at the end of 1850. It is his only published work of fiction. It is a work of Christian sacrificial morality and charity, and it's set in the alpine landscape Ruskin loved and knew so well, and it remains his most translated work. Effie Gray was from a large family and very sociable. The courtship is done almost entirely by letter, and on the 10th of April, 1848, at age 29, Ruskin marries Effie, then age 19, at her home, Bowserwell, in Perth, once the residence of the Ruskin family. It was the site of the suicide of Ruskin's grandfather, John Thomas Ruskin. Owing to this association and other complications, Ruskin's parents did not attend the wedding. They honeymooned in Normandy. Here, Ruskin admired the Gothic architecture. The next year, 1849, Effie and John Ruskin visited Venice. For Effie, Venice provided an opportunity to socialise, while Ruskin was engaged in solitary studies. In particular, he made a point of drawing the Golden House, the Palazzo Santa Sofia, and the Doge's Palace, because he feared they would be destroyed by the occupying Austrian troops. The marriage lasted five years before Effie filed and was granted a divorce on the grounds of non-consummation a charge that Ruskin confirmed. Many have guessed at what the reason was for the non-consummation, but no one knows. All we know is that Ruskin said he was repulsed by her naked body. Five years later in 1858, the wealthy Latouche family engaged Ruskin to teach their daughters drawing and painting. Rose was nine and Ruskin was much taken with her. And when she was in her late teens, he eventually proposed marriage both Rose and her parents refused. There is only one record of them having met after his teaching had finished, but they corresponded regularly. And when Rose dies at age 27 in 1875, Ruskin was devastated. And it is likely this worsened his mental decline. 
His affections are then directed towards the fourth century saint, virgin and martyr, Saint Ursula, who he sees as a saintly reincarnation of Rose. He is not in a good place. He has actually gone to Venice after Rose's death, but all he sees is decay and misery. Gradually, through the painting of Saint Ursula by Vittor Capaccio, he starts to conflate Rose and Saint Ursula and receives comfort, refines his spirituality and regains some of his former sanity. There's no evidence that any of his relationships had any sexual element. Whilst in Venice with Effie, Ruskin is researching for his three volume book, The Stones of Venice, which is a history and architectural study of Venice, which develops into a broad cultural history encompassing contemporary England as well. It served as a warning about the moral and spiritual health of society. Ruskin argued that Venice had been great and slowly degenerated and the same was happening to Britain. After returning from Venice, Ruskin and Effie take a holiday in Scotland so that Ruskin can work on the Stones of Venice. Turner had just died, and Ruskin decided to mentor the promising young artist Millet to become Britain's greatest painter. So Millet is invited along. Ruskin is keen to enthuse Millet at this point in the accurate depiction of geology and rocks. Geology was always Ruskin's first love. I'm not sure how much attention Millet was giving to the rocks. For while Ruskin had his nose buried in his writing, Millet and Effie would go for walks, often in the typical Scottish summer weather of rain. Shortly after this holiday, Effie gets her annulment and she marries Millet. Ruskin's father was always concerned that Ruskin's socialist ideas, if widely promoted, could harm his wine and sherry business. So out of respect to his father, Ruskin didn't promote them. This all changed after his father's death and in the 1860s saw Ruskin increasingly turn to matters of social concern. He gives talks on the role of women and writes up his speech in a paper called Of Queen's Gardens. In it, he accepts the Victorian view that a woman's role is to run the home, but forcibly argues it should not be confined to the home and should not be subservient to men. Here is one quote. The relations of the womanly to the manly nature their different capacities of intellect or of virtue seem never to have been yet estimated with entire consent. We hear of the mission and of the rights of women as if these could ever be separate from the mission and the rights of man, as if she and her Lord were creatures of independent kind and of irreconcilable claim. This at least is wrong and not less wrong, perhaps even more foolishly wrong, is the idea that woman is only the shadow and attendant image of her Lord, owing him a thoughtless and servile obedience and supported altogether in her weakness by the preeminence of his fortitude. This book proved to be one of Ruskin's most popular and was regularly awarded as a Sunday school prize. In 1864, his father dies, leaving Ruskin around 10 to 13 million pounds in today's money. One of his first actions was to support the housing work of the social reformer Octavia Hill. He bought eight properties in Marylebone to aid her philanthropic housing scheme. And 10 years later, Octavia Hill had managed to attract further investment and was providing social housing for 3,000 tenants. Also in the 1860s, he wrote a letter saying, he often visited the British Museum to look at penguins to cure his states of disgust and fury. This may be an example of the deep despair and depression that was to mark his later years. So if you're feeling a bit melancholy, do try penguins.
1869, Ruskin is appointed as the first Slade Professor of Fine Arts at Oxford University. An incident occurs that shows us Ruskin's charisma and reputation. William Morris, founder of the Arts and Crafts Movement, was invited to lecture on art and plutocracy in the Hall of University College. Stephen Gwynne was an undergraduate at the time and attended the lecture, he writes. The title did not suggest an exhortation to join a socialist alliance, but that is what we got. When he ended, the master of the university, Dr. Bright, stood up and instead of returning thanks, protested that the hall had been lent for a lecture on art and would certainly not have been made available for preaching socialism. He stammered a little at all times, and now, finding the ungracious words literally stick in his throat, sat down, leaving the remonstrance incomplete, but clearly indicated. The situation was most unpleasant. Morris at any time was choleric, and his face flamed red over his white shirt front. He probably thought he had conceded enough by assuming against usage a conventional garb. There was a hubbub, and then from the audience, Ruskin rose, and instantly there was quiet. With a few courteous, well-chosen sentences, he made everybody feel that we were an assembly of gentlemen, that Morris was not only an artist, but a gentleman and an Oxford man, and had said or done nothing which gentlemen in Oxford should resent, and the whole storm subsided before that gentle authority. Doug Seeler, an architect with interest in historic preservations while visiting the 2019 Yale exhibition and writes, one item that caught my eye was a wood engraving titled Amateur Nabbies at Oxford, undergraduates making a road as suggested by Mr. Ruskin. The backstory is that Ruskin in 1874, while serving as the first Slade Professor of Fine Art, was dismayed by his students wasting time on what he considered frivolous activities and initiated a project to rebuild a nearby road. The old road at North Hinsky had been subsumed in a swamp and the local people suffered much from cholera. The effort to rebuild was widely reported and the students became a spectacle, ogled and laughed at by people of all classes from the top hat wearing bourgeois on the right to the rural labourers sprawled on the bank. The exhibition catalogue described the project as an attempt to teach England's future leaders a practical lesson in the dignity of labour, as articulated in The Nature of Gothic, the famous chapter from the book two of The Stones of Venice. The book was not only an important essay arguing in favour of Gothic architecture and the use of ornament, but it is also the first time he wrote about the place of labour in an industrial world and the role of economic political systems on people and society and he particularly railed against the dehumanizing effects of the division of labor. One final point about the project is that it was a formative experience for those involved, which included, among others of note, Oscar Wilde. Though only briefly involved, he later wrote of the experience, Ruskin worked with us in the mist and the rain and mud of an Oxford winter, and our friends and enemies came out and mocked us from the bank. We did not mind it much then, and we did not mind it afterwards at all, but worked away for two months at our road. And what became of the road? Well, like a bad lecture, it ended abruptly in the middle of a swamp. In 1871, Ruskin buys Brantwood House overlooking Coniston Water in the Lake District. And from the following year, it became his main residence for the rest of his life. 
The final decade of his life was a sad affair. A series of strokes and depression left him very much a recluse. He hardly spoke and wrote even less. There was the occasional visitor and he was looked after by Joan Severin, his second cousin. He died just before his 81st birthday on the 20th of January, 1900. As he had wished, the last things he saw before dying were the Turner pictures that covered his bedroom walls. He is buried in Coniston Churchyard. The house and contents were left to Joan Severin and her family. We now turn briefly to his paintings before looking at his role as an art critic. Mum Ruskin's numerous drawings from nature are dozens of life-size studies of leaf sprays. As a boy, in order to train his eye and his hand, Ruskin would bring in a freshly gathered branch from outdoors, and while his father read aloud to him for half an hour after breakfast, Ruskin would challenge himself to finish a full-scale pen and ink drawing of the foliage and fill it with the rapid watercolour washes. Later, when he was running the drawing school at Oxford that he set up, he produced many studies like this. Hundreds of such drawings were donated to the school in the 1870s. I'm sure, like me, you spent a lot of lockdown in local walks with an opportunity to study nature more closely. On one occasion, I noticed some oak leaves. I wouldn't have paid them any attention before, but they reminded me of the sketch by Ruskin. As well as rocks and plants, Ruskin was intrigued by clouds and light and loved landscapes. Being of independent means, he never sold his paintings. They were for his own education and for the education of others. Most he donated to the Ashmolean or the Sheffield Museum or used in his painting and drawing classes. Ruskin loved the Alps and visited many times and he sketched, painted and recorded the nature that he saw. He wasn't concerned about producing a finished work that could be exhibited, but in recording what he saw and just as importantly, what he felt. Ruskin's role as an art critic and his renowned skill as a word painter we will look at next. This ditty from the magazine Punch that shows the impact his criticisms could have on an artist. I take some paints, hears no complaints, and sells before I'm dry. Till savage Ruskin, he sticks his tusk in, and now no one will buy. Ruskin as an art critic. So Gaspar Duguay, also known as Gaspar Poussin, was a noted French landscape painter, admired by Thomas Gainsborough and John Constable, amongst others. But Ruskin could not abide his painting of trees. When Ruskin critiques a painting, he critiques each and every aspect of it. And as far as Gaspar Poussin's trees were concerned, Ruskin says the trunks are just not realistic. They don't follow what he has observed. They're shown tapered and resembled not so much the trunk of a tree, but more a carrot or a parsnip. Now, I enjoy nature and often take walks in the countryside, and I must have seen millions of trees in my time. But it wasn't until I read Ruskin's Modern Painters that I learned something obvious about trees. And with regard to ordinary English trees, and those explicitly mentioned by Ruskin are the oak, elm, ash, hazel, willow, birch, beech, poplar, chestnut, pine, olive, and ilex, he writes, neither the stems nor the boughs of any of the above trees taper, except where they fork. Wherever a stem sends off a branch, or a branch a lesser bough, or a lesser bough a bud, the stem of the branch is, on the instant, less in diameter by the exact quantity of the branch or bough that they have sent off. This law is imperative and without exception, no bough nor stem nor twig ever tapering or becoming narrower towards its extremity by hairbreadth. 
save where it parts with some portion of its substance at a fork or a bud. So that if all the twigs and sprays, the top and sides of the tree, which are and have been, could be united without loss of space, they would form a round log of the diameter of the trunk from which they spring. This is the kind of observation for seeing clearly that Ruskin is famous for. On average, we look at a painting in a museum for about 20 seconds. Ruskin would argue that this is not nearly long enough to see the painting, let alone understand it. He talks about studying a painting for an hour. A great painting should be both true to the form of its subject, but also true to the emotional impact of the subject. A painting needs to reach the soul with poetry, as well as the eyes with form, line and colour. What Ruskin does is give us eyes to see and imagination to appreciate. Here are his comments on Edward Lancier's The Old Shepherd, Chief Mourner. Take, for instance, one of the most perfect poems or pictures, I use the word synonymously, which modern times have seen, The Old Shepherd's Chief Mourner. Here, the exquisite execution of the glossy and crisp hair of the dog, the bright, sharp touching of the green bough beside it, the clear painting of the wood of the coffin and the folds of the blanket are language, language clear and expressive in the highest degree. But the close pressure of the dog's breast against the wood, the convulsive clinging of the paws, which has dragged the blanket off the trestle, the total powerlessness of the head laid close and motionless upon its folds, the fixed and fearful fall of the eye in its utter hopelessness, the rigidity of repose which marks that there has been no motion nor change in the trance of agony since the last blow was struck on the coffin lid, the quietness and gloom of the chamber, the spectacles marking the place where the Bible was last closed, indicating how lonely has been the life, how unwatched the departure of him who is now laid solitary in his sleep. These are all thoughts, thoughts by which the picture is separated at once from hundreds of equal merit, as far as mere painting goes, by which it ranks as a work of high art and stamps its author, not as the neat imitator of the texture of skin or the fold of drapery, but as the man of mind. Ruskin certainly helps me understand and appreciate paintings, so I hope this passage did the same for you. Claude Lorraine was a 17th century French artist who lived and worked in Italy, um, and along with his Dutch contemporaries, really established the genre of landscape painting as respectable and worthy. His style, classical style, is sometimes called Roman school. John Constable at the turn of the 18th, 19th century, was a great admirer of Claude and Claude's paintings were very popular in Britain in Ruskin's time. This is Ruskin's description and critique of the painting from the preface to the second edition of Modern Painters. Let us test these simple rules. One of the quotes, ideal landscape compositions of Claude that is known to the Italians as Il Molino. The foreground is a piece of very lovely and perfect forest scenery with a dance of peasants by a brookside quite enough subject to form in the hands of a master, an impressive and complete picture. On the other side of the brook, however, we have a piece of pastoral life, a man with some bulls and goats tumbling head foremost into the water, owing to some sudden paralytic affliction of all their legs. Even this group is one too many. The shepherd had no business to drive his flock so near the dancers, 
and the dancers will certainly frighten the cattle. But when we look further into the picture, our feelings receive a sudden and violent shock by the unexpected appearance amidst things pastoral and musical of the military. A number of Roman soldiers riding in on hobby horses with a leader on foot, apparently encouraging them to make an immediate and decisive charge on the musicians. Beyond the soldiers is a circular temple in exceedingly bad repair, and close beside it, built against its very walls, a neat water mill in full work. By the mill flows a large river with a weir all across it. The weir has not been made for the mill, for that receives its water from the hills by a trough carried over the temple. But it is particularly ugly and monotonous in its line of full, and the water below forms a dead-looking pond on which some people are fishing in punts. The banks of the river resemble in contour the later geological formations around London, chiefly of broken pots and oyster shells. At an inconvenient distance from the waterside stands a city, composed of 25 round towers and a pyramid. Beyond the city is a handsome bridge, beyond the bridge part of the Campania, with fragments of aqueducts, beyond the Campania the chain of the Alps, and on the left the Cascades of Tivoli. This, I believe, a fair example of what is commonly called an ideal landscape. By a group of the artist studies from nature, individually spoiled, selected with such opposition of character as may ensure they're neutralizing each other's effect and united with sufficient unnaturalness and violence of association to ensure they're producing a general sensation of the impossible. Hopefully this passage has brought to life the accolade word painter, and I think we can see how Ruskin could make or break a painter. You would be a brave aristocrat to purchase a paintings that Ruskin disapproved of. Whistler's Nocturne in Black and Gold, The Falling Rocket, painted in 1875 and was first shown at the Grosvenor Gallery in London in 1877. It was inspired by and is set in the Cremorne Gardens by the Thames in Chelsea, a celebrated pleasure resort in London. By day, populous, decorous and charming. By night, according to one description, a nursery of every kind of vice. Whistler was an egotist who had many mistresses and fathered many illegitimate children. He argued with practically everyone in London and he was proud of his American heritage. Just before the opening of the Grosvenor Gallery exhibition, he had been commissioned to paint a portrait of the wife of the shipping magnate, Frederick Leyland, to be displayed in his newly redecorated gallery, displaying his blue and white china collection. Whistler totally exceeded his brief and redecorated the whole room in a style that made his painting, not the china, center stage. Leyland was furious and only paid Whistler 200 pounds, not 200 guineas, as agreed. Only tradesmen were paid in pounds, creatives were paid in guineas, so this was a great affront to Whistler. Whistler was also a meticulous painter and spent days on his paintings, but as part of his image, he liked to pretend that he'd knocked paintings up in a few hours. When Ruskin went to the Grosvenor Gallery and saw Whistler's paintings, he was in a sorry mental state following the death of Rose Latouche but he still held his lifelong Christian beliefs that art should be a moral force for good. And he disliked Whistler's morals and lifestyle and thought art should not be used to promote depravity 
and the Cremorne Gardens was not a suitable subject for art. And this leads Ruskin to publish the following in his magazine for workers. For Mr. Whistler's own sake, no less than that for the protection of the purchaser, Sir Coutts Lindsay ought not to admit it works into the gallery in which the ill-educated conceit of the artist so nearly approached the aspect of willful imposture. I have seen and heard much of Cockney impudence before now, but never expected to hear a coxcomb ask 200 guineas for flinging a pot of paint in the public's face. Ruskin's harsh critique of the falling rocket caused an uproar amongst owners of other Whistler works. Rapidly, it became shameful to have a Whistler piece, and the critique bruised not only Whistler's pride, but also his finances. Ruskin already had a reputation of being able to make or break artists, so Whistler sued Ruskin for defamation leading to serious professional losses, and this led to the famous Ruskin-Whistler trial. Whistler asked the jury to not view his painting as a traditional painting, but instead as an artistic arrangement. And he said it was not a view of the Cremorne, which the judge questioned, and which Whistler was quoted as saying, if it were a view of the Cremorne, it would certainly bring about nothing but disappointment on the part of the beholders. However, his case was not helped when the falling rocket was accidentally presented in trial upside down. His explanation of the composition didn't convince the judge. Famously, the judge asked Whistler, do you really charge 200 guineas for works of art that you claim took you only an hour to produce? To which Whistler replied, no, I ask it for the experience of a lifetime. Whilst technically Whistler won his case, he was ordered only a farthing in compensation. The judge said he had no sympathy for either the defendant nor the claimant and ordered that each should pay their own costs. This forced Whistler into bankruptcy. It is sad that as artists, Ruskin and Whistler had similar outlooks and putting personality, religion and morality to one side would have enjoyed each other's appreciation of art. And the trial has echoes of today's cancel culture. Ruskin resigned his professorship at Oxford, saying that he could no longer say what he felt without risk of prosecution. Whistler eventually restored his fortune, but never forgave Ruskin and lectured frequently about the trial, arguing for freedom of expression for artists. In the three volumes of his book, The Stones of Venice, Ruskin documents the architecture of Venice in such exquisite detail that it has been said that should Venice be destroyed, it could be rebuilt using Ruskin's book. Here is a description of the Venetian towers compared to British towers. The old tower is that of St Mark's at Venice, not a perfect example, for its top is Renaissance, but as good Renaissance as there is in Venice. And it is fit for our present purpose because it owes none of its effect to ornament. It is built as simply as it well can be to answer its purpose. No buttresses, no external features, whatever, except some huts at its base. And the loggia afterwards built, which on purpose I have not drawn, one bold square mass of brickwork, double walls with an ascending inclined plane between them, with apertures as small as possible, and these only in necessary places, giving just the light required for ascending the stair or slope, not a ray more. 
and the weight of the hole, relieved only by the double pilasters on the sides, sustaining small arches at the top of the mass, each decorated with a scallop or a cockle shell, presently to be noticed as frequent in Renaissance ornament, and here for once thoroughly well applied. Then, when the necessary height is reached, the belfry is left open, as in the ordinary Romansk campanile. Only the shafts, more slender but severe and simple, and the whole crowned by as much spire as the tower would carry to render it more serviceable as a landmark. The arrangement is repeated in numberless campanals throughout Italy. The one beside it is one of the best of those lately built college at Edinburgh. I have not taken it as a worse than many others, just as I have not taken the St Mark's Tower as better than many others, but it happens to compress our British system of tower building into a small space. The Venetian Tower rises 350 feet and has no buttresses, though built of brick. The British Tower rises 121 feet and is built of stone, but is supposed to be incapable of standing without two huge buttresses on each angle. The St Mark's Tower has a high sloping roof, but carries it simply, requiring no pinnacles at its angles. The British Tower has no visible roof, but has four pinnacles for mere ornament. The Venetian Tower has its lightest part at the top and is massy at the base. The British Tower has its lightest part at the base and shuts up its windows into a mere arrow slit at the top. What the tower was built for at all must therefore, it seems to me, remain a mystery to every beholder. For surely no studious inhabitants of its upper chambers will be conceived to be pursuing his employment by the light of a single chink on each side. And it has been intended for a belfry. The sound of its bells would have been as effectually prevented from getting out as the light from getting in. Well, one of the things I forgot to tell you all is Ruskin doesn't like the full stop. He uses commas and semicolons. What you get is just a stream of consciousness, which makes it incredibly hard to read. I think you can see, just as we saw with the art, what we're seeing here is Ruskin applying his seeing clearly skill to architecture. The section of the Stones of Venice that had the most impact was one called The Nature of Gothic. It's 12 pages, and if you want to understand Gothic architecture, I thoroughly recommend it. It's widely available on the web for no charge. Here is a flavour, and I've abbreviated some of the sections. The principal difficulty in defending the nature of Gothic arises from the fact that every building of the Gothic period differs in some important re respect from each other, and many include features which, if they occurred in other buildings, would not be considered Gothic at all. So that we have to have reason upon it is merely, if I may be allowed so to express it, a greater or lesser gothicness in each building we examine. And it is this gothicness, the character which accordingly, as it is found more or less in a building, makes it more or less gothic, of which I want to define the nature. 
to make the abstraction of the Gothic character intelligible, that characteristic itself is made up of many mingled ideas and can consist only in their union. That is to say, pointed arches do not constitute Gothic, nor vaulted roofs, nor flying buttresses, nor grotesque sculptures, but all or some of these, amid many other things with them, when they come together so as to have life. There are six characteristics of gothicness. Savageness, changefulness, naturalism, grotesqueness, rigidity, and lastly, redundance. These characters are here expressed as belonging to the building. As belonging to the builder, they would be expressed thus, as savageness or rudeness, love of change, love of nature, a disturbed imagination, obstinacy, and lastly, generosity. And I repeat that the withdrawal of any one or any two will not at once destroy the Gothic character of a building, but the removal of a majority of them will. I shall proceed to examine them in their order. And he then goes on to expand at some length, as you could imagine, on each of these characteristics. But we should note he's introduced a very interesting concept here. The character of the builder as distinct from the character of the building. And he expands on the importance of this concept. Wherever the workman is utterly enslaved, the parts of the building must, of course, be absolutely like each other. For the perfection of this execution can only be reached by exercising him in doing one thing and giving him nothing else to do. The degree in which the workman is degraded may thus known at a glance by observing whether the several parts of the building are similar or not, and if as in the Greek work, all the capitals are alike and all the mouldings unvaried, then the degradation is complete. If, as in the Egyptian or Ninevite, through the manner of executing certain figures is always the same, the order of design is perpetually varied. The degradation less total. If, as in the Gothic work, there is perpetual change, both in design and execution, the workman must have been altogether set free. So Ruskin's love of Gothic architecture is thus built on the creativity and freedom, as he saw it, that the form gave the builders, or craftsmen as he thought of them. Man executing the art of craft is good, man toiling at repetitive labour is bad. This is how Ruskin gets from art to architecture to social concerns to political economy. In this last section, then, we look at Ruskin as a social reformer, the Smoky Postcard series, which were very popular in the days when Stoke-on-Trent was proud of its dusky image in the belief that plenty of smoke meant plenty of work. In 1884, Ruskin gives a lecture for the London Institute with the title The Storm Clouds of the 19th Century, in which he discusses the impact of industrialization on the environment. For 50 years, he had kept a diary, which included daily weather conditions, colour and type of clouds. Most of the lecture is description of weather and how the weather has changed. And he does suggest a culprit for the change of weather. 
he recalls the first time he recognised the clouds brought by what he calls the plague wind as distinct in character was when walking back from Oxford after a hard day's work. Here is his description from Matlock in Derbyshire. It is the 1st of July and I sit down to write by the dismalest light that ever yet I wrote, namely the light of this midsummer morning in mid-England in the year 1871. For the sky is covered with grey cloud, not a rain cloud, but a dry black veil, which no ray of sunshine can pierce, partly diffused in mist, feeble mist, enough to make distant objects unintelligible, yet without any substance or wreathing or color of its own. And everywhere the leaves of the trees are shaking fitfully as they do before a thunderstorm, only not violently, but enough to show the passing to and fro of a strange, bitter, blighting wind. Dismal enough, had it been the first morning of its kind that summer had sent. But during all this spring, in London and at Oxford, through meagre March, through changelessly sullen April, through despondent May and darkened June, morning after morning has come grey shrouded thus. And it is a new thing to me and a very dreadful one. I am 50 years old and more, and since I was five, have gleaned the best hours of my life in the sun of spring and summer mornings, and I never saw such as these till now. And the scientific men are busy as ants, examining the sun and the moon and the seven stars, and can tell me all about them, I believe by this time, and how they move and what they are made of. And I do not care, for my part, two copper spangles how they move, nor what they are made of. I can't move them any other way than they go, nor make them of anything else better than they are made. But I would care much and give much if I could be told where this bitter wind comes from and what it is made of. For perhaps with forethought and a fine laboratory science, one might make it of something else. It looks partly as if the plague clouds were made of poisonous smoke, very possibly it may be, there are at least 200 furnace chimneys in a square of two miles on every side of me. But mere smoke would not blow to and fro in that wild way. It looks more to me as if it were made of dead men's souls, such of them as are not gone yet where they have to go, and maybe flitting hither and thither, doubting themselves of the fittest place for them. Flowers of dead men's souls. Ruskin knows because of his detailed observations the, of the climate, that the climate has changed and suspects this is down to what man is doing in the, to the environment. And he finishes this first lecture with, 
that the empire of England, on which formerly the sun never set, has become one on which the sun never rises. This must have been a powerful image for the very confident Victorians. Mayor de Glass Chamonix in 1854, photographed by John Ruskin and his assistant, Frederick Crawley. Ruskin provides more quantitative evidence of climate change when he reflects how he has seen this glacier change. In 2018, Eber Stibben took a photograph from exactly the same spot. The glacier has gone. Ruskin knew the glacier was going for he visited frequently and wrote in 1874, I was able to cross the dry bed of the glacier, which I had seen flowing 200 feet deep over the same spot 40 years ago. Ruskin knew the climate was changing. He didn't know why, but raised concerns highlighting the impact on people's lives. And today we have his very detailed pictorial and written records to inform our scientific assessment of climate change. A scientific report published in 1912, picked up by local and national papers at the time, warned that the scale of man-made CO2 would raise temperatures and could have, quote, a considerable effect in a few centuries. Those that have had eyes to see have been warning of climate change for at least a hundred years. There is one pre-Raphaelite painter, Ford Maddox Brown's depiction, Work, showing the types of work available to people from different social classes. In theme and messaging, there is much of the social critic and satirist William Hogarth. The nature and meaning of work was an active topic of conversation, so we should expect Ruskin to have a view. Ford Maddox Brown considered putting Ruskin in this painting, but despite the fact they had similar views on work, Ruskin had criticised his art, so it wasn't included. Ruskin wrote in The Stones of Venice a decade before this picture, the great cry that rises from all our manufacturing cities, louder than their furnace blasts, is all in very deed for this, that we manufacture everything there except men. We blanch cotton, we strengthen steel and refine sugar and shape pottery, but to brighten, to strengthen, to refine, to form a single living spirit, never enters into our estimate of advantages and all the evil to which that cry is urging our myriads can be met only in one way not by teaching nor preaching for to teach them is but to show them their misery and to preach to them if we do nothing more than preach is to mock at it it can be met only by a right understanding on the part of all classes of what kinds of labor are good for men, raising them and making them happy. Ruskin then goes on to explain how the economy and work can be organized to alleviate this evil. Ruskin argued passionately that people should have meaningful work and in unto this last, he rejected the division of labor as dehumanizing. And he argued that political economy should consider social factors such as social cohesion and mental and physical health. And he argued for the involvement of charitable and non-governmental organizations. It is worth noting Ruskin was a man of his time and believed in a hierarchical social structure. He wrote, I was, and my father was before me, a violent Tory of the old school. And while he argued for better working conditions and a better life for the poor, he didn't believe in social equality, leveling up. Ruskin's influence reached across the world, 
Tolstoy described him as one of the most remarkable men, not only of England and of our generation, but of all countries and times, and quoted extensively from him, rendering his ideas into Russian. Proust not only admired Ruskin, but helped translate his works into French. Gandhi wrote of the magic spell cast on him by Unto This Last, and he paraphrased the work in Gujarati, calling it Sabodaya, meaning the welfare of all. Gandhi said after reading Unto This Last, I was determined to change my life in accordance with the ideals of this book. Some say with this result, the fate of the British Empire was sealed. In Japan, Ruzo Mikimoto established the Ruskin Society of Tokyo and his children built a dedicated library to house his Ruskin collection. Ruskin's book Unto This Last was the most significant of his writings when it comes to social reform. It contains one of Ruskin's most well-known insights. There is no wealth but life. And the quote continues, life, including all its powers of love, of joy and of admiration. That country is the richest, which nourishes the greatest number of noble and happy human beings. That man is richest, who having perfected the functions of his own life to the utmost, has always the widest helpful influence, both personal and by means of his possessions over the lives of others. In it, he argues that work needs to be a craft and have beauty in it, not be a treadmill for automata, having to live in squalor through the pittance of their wages. In the 1906 general election, for the first time, there was a significant intake of Labour MPs. They were polled and asked which authors or books had most influenced them. The top four were Carlyle, Ruskin, Dickens and the Bible. This was 40 years after Ruskin published Unto This Last. William Cobbett, who was a couple of generations before Ruskin, but shared his passion for the rural. G.K. Chesterton, who claimed to be significantly influenced by Ruskin, wrote this charming introduction in 1916 to Cobbett's book, Cottage Economy, to highlight the differences between Cobbett and Ruskin. I have slightly edited it. What distinguishes Cobbett from the most rural idealists, such as Ruskin, is that he was a realist as well. Like Ruskin and long before Ruskin, he denounced the eating up of England by factories and industrial towns. He must have credit because he had not, like Ruskin, the advantage of living when the terrible transformation was almost complete, when it was well within sight of its present congestion and collapse. If we compare him with Ruskin, even upon Ruskin's own most sacred ground of the historic ports of old churches of England, even here he shows that note of practicality, which is the note of hope, while Ruskin considers how many carvings might be found in a church, Cobbett always considered how many people might be seated in it. An unamiable critic might say that Ruskin knew everything about the building of a church except what it was built for. This would be exaggerative, but it's really relevant to a note that Cobbett, in that utterly unchristian epoch, did understand what it was built for. It is the same pointed and faithful attitude that he occupies towards other things especially towards the thrift and the cottager, which is the matter of this book. Ruskin could be trusted to tell his pupils how they should labour with paint or pencil to reproduce every vein and tint upon a cabbage leaf. But few would have trusted Ruskin with the cooking of the cabbage. I think it fair to say Cobbett more addressed material needs, while Ruskin more the spiritual and emotional needs of workers. To finish, a last quote from Ruskin from his autobiography in his writings, Prosperina. He considered the evergreen, everlasting leaves on the trees in the Garden of Eden and considered each leaf as representing the lasting significance of a human life, 
a life interconnected to a greater whole. He then wrote, other symbols have been given often to show the evanescence and slightness of our lives. The foam upon the water, the grass on the housetop, the vapour that vanishes away. Yet none of these are images of a true human life. That life, when it is real, is not evanescent, is not slight, does not vanish away. Every noble life leaves the fibre of it interwoven forever in the work of the world. I think it fair to say his was a noble life well woven into the fabric of Britain and inspiring and enabled many to make Britain a better, more beautiful place. So thank you, Charles and Lorna, for helping to bring Ruskin alive for us. This podcast has been produced by the Mr T Podcast Studio in association with the Farnham U3A World History Group. Thank you very much for listening to this talk.